Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have an anonymous chain pharmacist. He previously worked for CVS Pharmacy and prefers to go by Arthur, so you will hear me refer to Arthur, and he is my guest today, Arthur, who used to work for CVS. So thanks for coming on the podcast, even though you're doing it anonymously. Oh, no problem. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Great. So kind of giving you guys a little bit of background here, uh, Arthur was also a Paragon Award winner for CVS and has since left the company due to some things he was seeing when he was there and had no problem finding a job because he's a really good pharmacist. But we kind of wanted to talk about some of the issues that have been coming out with CVS recently about how far behind some of the, the pharmacies are. And to be fair, it's not just CVS, but CVS is the one that actually had to come out and publicly apologize for being days and sometimes upwards of two weeks behind with their fill cues, meaning that if you dropped off a prescription for, I'm assuming, a chronic medication, nothing short-term like a child's antibiotic, it might take you two weeks to get your blood pressure medication. That's how far ahead you'd have to order it. So with that, is that kind of like what you were seeing and what you were hearing about from your friends and what you saw when you worked for CVS, Arthur? Yeah. So in the region that I was in, there's three metropolitan areas. And over the past, I'd say nine months or so, I was able to see a lot more things um, through being an emerging leader. And I know of at least four or five stores that I was in personally that they would have upwards of 1,500 prescriptions waiting in their print queue to be printed, counted, checked, and everything, which for some stores might only be a few days, but then the most egregious one that I heard of was two weeks. The patients were calling the pharmacy. The pharmacy wasn't even answering the phone. It was right down the road from where I worked. So we would have people calling us, having us pull scripts through to our store all the time just because they were so far behind. And this was a store that I'd just been moved to that was two days behind. So we are seeing that a lot and it seems like we've seen it more and more frequently. I remember back in 2013 hearing about a store in Washington, DC that was like uh, 15, 1600 scripts behind and just thinking how crazy that was. And now if I'd hear that, I would be like, well, that's pretty much status quo anymore is you've got these stores scattered around that, are that way so yeah. it's it is becoming a bigger and bigger issue with cvs it's not just isolated to a few stores the i know the article that i had originally seen about this the spokesperson for cvs said basically this is an isolated incident but it, it's not isolated it's very much everywhere at this point and, you know, it, it's kind of frustrating because as a pharmacist, you want to be able to do a good job. You want to be able to take care of someone. And you want to know that when someone comes into your store, you can help them. And I, we're not flipping burgers. This isn't going to be a, hi, how are you? You know, order at this window. It's ready by this window. We've got to do our checks and do our do our professional work to make sure it's right, it's appropriate, and it's accurate. So I want to make sure that that's not what the expectation we're setting is. But this is a case where if you order a blood pressure medication, you have to order it when you have two weeks left and then get it to go through the insurance, which is another delicate balance with the dates, and then have them fill it so you don't run out of your medication. And the interesting thing with CVS is, and I think kind of why they're the crux of a lot of this, is they're number one for amount of stores in the United States. And they're also, the I think they're the biggest, if not they're definitely one of the, but I think they're the biggest uh, PBM pharmacy benefit manager as well. And they also own the insurance company. So they really own all aspects here. So this isn't a case where 
there's a reimbursement issue or they're making cuts like that, like some of the other chains we've seen or some of the regional chains that don't own a PBM, they really have all the levers. So really, if anything, they could be able to overstaff with the amount of money they're making. I think they're a Fortune 10, maybe a Fortune 5 company at this point. They're way up there. There's no reason they shouldn't have the staffing for it. So with that, what do you think needs to be done or what can be done to fix this so that people can get their, their medications they need in a time, fast, and professional manner? Well, there's more than one answer is the problem. It's not just one thing. It's not if we just get more staff, life will be rosy because it's not just that problem. It goes everywhere from when you start to hire a person. At CVS, if you get in to start to hire, you could be looking at two months before you see that person in your pharmacy for the first time. And when somebody gives you a two weeks notice and you're trying to replace that person and you've got a six week gap between when that person that just left is gone and when you get your next person in there, it becomes a, a really big problem. So from a hiring aspect, it's huge. And then you're trying to train these people on hours that <laughs> are essentially set up to be for seasoned good techs. If you don't have seasoned good techs at CVS, the hour budgets aren't set up for you to succeed. There's, you're going to fail if you have a slow tech, you have somebody that doesn't know the system very well. And then the hours do, they, they do keep getting cut one after another. I know this year, something that I had never seen before is they decided to pull down the number of pharmacist hours in the middle of the year. Normally you see this happening at the first part of the year, the hours will get cut. But this year for the summer, they, they cut some hours out. And when they come to put those back in for the fall, a lot of those hours didn't come back. A mm -hmm. lot of stores that had overlap before no longer have overlap right at the same time when people are starting to get back out into the community from all the COVID lockdowns, schools are starting back up. You're starting to see more and more scripts come in from the summer law at the same time you're doing flu shots and you're not getting those extra hours. Um, I know some stores did get some of those back, but for the most part, those that went away didn't come back at full strength that they had been back in, in May. So you continue to see that kind of issue where hours keep getting pulled down. And as far as how to change it, I don't know how you're going to get some of those changes to happen until it starts hitting in the pocketbook. Yeah. So you, I just don't know how long it's going to take. So you're thinking like fines or punishment or, you know, something along that that would cause some repercussions so that they would, appropriately and not just CVS here, but so that they would appropriately take care of their patients in a manner that is suitable for their health care, basically. I'm thinking even just from patients saying, I'm done with this. I'm going somewhere else. And with CVS in particular, that can be a pretty hard sell because who are you going to go to when you have CVS insurance with a preferred plan as CVS? So you either go to the CVS store, you go to mail order. If you're not comfortable with mail order, you have to go to CVS. And if your local CVS is not running well, you're going to be stuck either paying out of pocket or paying a higher copay, which if it's a small amount more, people will start to leave. But if it's a large amount more, then they're kind of stuck. And until right. they start to see some repercussions from that, I, I don't know that you're going to see a lot of change. But I, I know that people customers in general are starting to get more and more agitated by this 
concern. I mean, it's not just an isolated incident where somebody has a, a bad week where somebody's out and then it's corrected and it's all good. Some of these stores are staying chronically behind two, three days for months at a time. Um, the store I was at at the very end of my time at CVS had been chronically behind two or three days for at least nine to 10 months at this point. Yeah. And two, so, or, two or three days and, is nothing compared to a week or two weeks, but it's still enough that it really wears on you mentally. And also people don't get their medications. You know, if they are out now it's two days to get that medication. That can be serious. If you're talking like a drug like metoprolol or, you know, someone's heart medication. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a problem until they decide they don't want it to be a problem anymore. Um, they will send in teams on the weekends to clear things out when it gets really bad. And that's great that they get them back to zero, but within three or four days, they're right back where they are because we're not addressing any of the root causes. We don't have good management in some of the stores, which I personally think is something that pharmacy schools are lacking at teaching their students good management skills because a lot of our pharmacy students are going out and they're not going to be sitting in a hospital where they don't have to worry about managing technicians. They're going to be in retail pharmacies. And a lot of times that means you have to have some management ability. And I see a lot where pharmacists don't have that and CVS wants them to do this and they don't have that skill set, which makes the problem even worse. And then if they do have that skill set, they don't have the time to do that because there, there's no management time built into the schedule. It's this is your time to do your checking, all your bench work. And then if you're going to do any management behind that, you have to do it on your off hours, which I was always willing to put in some time to make my life easier. But not everybody saw that benefit and they ended up paying for it later. Yeah. And so kind of unpacking what you said there a little bit, starting back earlier in it. So patient choice would be a huge thing here if states could, and even federally, just say, hey, patient choice, you know, you're not allowed to pay, steer patients to one pharmacy, play favorites, reimburse different, what have you, because now it makes it a truly competitive market, right? Like we always talk about this America, capitalism, it's free choice. You really don't have that with some of the games these PBMs are playing. In fact, I think very little actually have quote unquote free choice. I don't have any plans I've actually seen that have that and the co-pays are equal all around, whether you do mail order, local pickup, whatever it is, the type of way you want to get your prescription there. I've never really seen one in the past couple of years. That's a hundred percent equal across the board, unless I'm just ignorant to it, obviously. Again, I, I haven't seen that. And so that would be fixed. Part of this is I think is what you're kind of hitting at here. The other thing is, and I just want to point this out is there's a major labor issue here where pharmacists are basically forced to be, work off the clock. Now we're compensated pretty well. But we work in fairly high stress environments and people don't understand that when, like you said, you've got 1500 prescriptions that you know you have to get done and you know, there's no way you can get that done. It's like the battle of Sisyphus, just trying to push that rock up the hill and it keeps rolling back down on you, especially when you've got, you know, nine pharmacy calls ringing in the background or whatever it is, because you just can't keep up with the phone. You're chronically understaffed. And then you have on top of that, people who are higher up than you yelling at you about your metrics of why aren't you meeting this wait time? You know, why was this filled wrong? Why did this happen? And it just seems so self-evident when you look at the problem here. And so kind of one of the things I was getting at is, do you think this is calculated? And maybe it's like a Wall Street calculation of, well, you know what? There's a risk reward. We can run it like this, make this much profit, 
just to get to that next quarterly number so we can say, hey, we're a good company. Look how much profit we made. Is this? Do you think this might be calculated in some way? It may be. Um, honestly, I kind of hope it is because I hope that the people that are running these huge companies are self-aware enough to realize what's going on because there's not a CVS pharmacist out there that can't tell you that people would leave in a heartbeat in most stores anyway, if given the opportunity because things are not being run well and it might not be every store, but it's a a good portion of stores, but a lot of people are kind of stuck and when they are stuck, they can't leave. So CVS is like, okay, we don't have to worry about that person leaving. So they do have to be doing a calculation somewhere along the line. Um, If they're not, then that, that really concerns me (laughs) from an even greater standpoint of how can you be that ignorant of what's going on in your business well, and not see the writing on the wall. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing with the labor issue is, is not only is it just extremely stressful, but like you said, you're having to work off the clock, things like that. And that's not just a specific CVS thing here, but this is what, since that's what the article is about, that's kind of why we're talking about them a little bit more. So like, okay, people say you're salaried. Great. You're salaried. We make decent salaries. I, that's understandable. But those salaries are going backwards and they're going backwards pretty quick to the point where people's livelihoods and their homes are being threatened because they're like, hey, you're a manager, hey, you're a staff. If you want to step down and float, you're going to take a $10, $15, $17 an hour pay cut. Well, that's an incredible amount of money over the course of a year or a lifetime that you're giving up now. And then that can really, you know, once you get in a lifestyle, you know, it's people can say, well, you can cut back. Well, that's pretty hard to do sometimes if you have kids or you have a, a mortgage payment, things like that to make. And that adds to the stress level to some of these people because now they feel like they can't get out of that and they feel like they're stuck in this to some point. And they say your salary, but at the same time, they also want to treat you like you're hourly. It's kind of whatever's convenient for them at the moment. Is that kind of what you've seen too? Yeah, they will definitely push you to be there, stay however long it takes to get the things done. Some pharmacists are way more open to that than others. I personally always wanted to try to make my store as good as possible. And a lot of times I would have my techs come in about a half hour early. Um, they would go ahead and clock in and then I would just be there off the clock for the first half hour. Yep. And that would do wonders for a store to be able to get off to a good start. And yeah, that's two hours a week that I'm given to CVS. But in my calculation, it made my life and my work life balance a lot easier. So I was willing to make that sacrifice because I didn't need to deal with the stress of the other side of it if I didn't make that sacrifice. But there's definitely a push to do those things after your hours. And then it's like, so am I being compensated for those? And the standard answer is, yeah, you're getting your pay, you're getting your bonuses and all these other things. And that's fine to an extent. I mean, if you're talking a few hours a week, that's one thing, but when you start talking about some of these stores that are so far behind, you could be talking eight, nine, ten extra hours a week, and that becomes a whole different ballgame when you're yeah. talking about this kind of level of extra extra labor being involved. And I don't know of anybody that signs up for a 40-hour job and then finds out it's 50-plus-hour job that's going to be okay with that. Yeah, especially for the same pay. And just to be fair, you know, even though we talk about pharmacists being pretty well compensated compared to the average person – I know a lot of chain pharmacists haven't gotten a pay raise now in four or five years, if not longer, and some haven't got a bonus in that long either, despite the fact they're hitting what would be considered bonus metrics. Uh, I know that's happened with numerous people I know. Same 
principle for the companies they work for here. So that's just adding to the stress. You know, when you work, you work, you work, and you're like, oh, you're going to get a bonus. No bonus this year. Okay, so you just put in, by your math, 100 extra hours, not counting vacation that you might have taken off in a year. So you work an extra two and a half weeks almost that you're now not getting paid for, basically. It just got taken right back from you because you're not getting that bonus. And that's part of what makes it so stressful is you're seeing these numbers just get backed up, backed up, backed up. And you can see where there's a way that they can answer it, especially, again, when you own the PBM and the insurance company, you own all the payment levers here. There's no reason why you can't put an extra one or two people here, one or two people there to help really kind of make this just better for everybody overall. And I think that's what the frustrating part is and why we've seen so much come out about this and these articles that just keep over and over again. I mean, we're talking from January of last year when Wesley Hickman at Ellen Gabler collaborated to launch that New York Times article to now we're back in October again. And, you know, we're still having the same stories pop up left and right every week, it seems like. Do you think that's a kind of a fair analysis of that? Yeah, I think the... Uh the COVID pandemic has had calmed down things for a little bit right? because people weren't coming into the store as much. And I know in my store, we had a pretty good significant drop in scripts and there for a while, the, all the algorithms hadn't updated themselves. So we had plenty of tech help. Yeah. We had plenty of pharmacists help. And then those algorithms caught up <laughs> and it, we started to see that drop. And then when, patients start to come back to those algorithms on the other side of it they didn't catch up quick and you start to feel that stress until those algorithms are going to catch back up with what business actually looks like you you're seeing all these things happen and even when they do catch up the the stores that are way behind they stay way behind it's just chronic it feels like and a lot of times you do see them in metro areas i don't see very many CVSs that are in extremely rural areas that have this problem. And I don't know if that's just the way the towns are versus where a city is, but I, I have noticed that. Uh, I don't know if that's has anything to do with anything or not, but the, the cities do ten, tend to be way worse Yeah, when it comes to, to how bad these situations are. You know, and one of the interesting things that you had mentioned as we were talking leading up to this is Regulating the PBMs, there's there's some answer there, but you had an interesting take on that with uh, with regulating them. Can you kind of elaborate on what your thought was with that? So I think PBMs are just a symptom of a much, much bigger problem when it comes to regulating things and just pharmacy and just healthcare in general. I personally consider myself to be a voluntarist, which that's a word that not very many people throw around, but it essentially means that I don't think the government should be involved in anything. Um, some people would throw out the word anarchist, which I'd be okay with. And I just, from a philosophical standpoint, not really comfortable with people forcing other people to do things that they don't want to do. But from a practical standpoint, when you talk about regulation, there's a, a term called regulatory capture that basically is just talking about how a industry gets regulated. They got these new regulations thrown on. The people who are writing those are not well-meaning citizens that are going to fix things. They're the actual problem companies are the ones who are most influential in setting up those uh, regulations for the industry at large. So, yeah, it's going to cost them some money for that regulation to occur, but these big guys have the money, the manpower, they can get specialized people to work 
specifically on that regulation, whereas your smaller pharmacies, smaller chains, it's on one person to do as part of their job. So it, it ends up costing them more. So your big guys end up making up the difference in the aggregate when they, they take more and more market share. So from a regulatory standpoint, I personally am never going to be up for more regulation. I'm more for we need to find ways to remove some of the regulations that are allowing these large companies to set up essentially monopolies that wouldn't really occur if the market was freer. Okay. And I think that's a little bit different take than a lot of people previously on the podcast have had, but I think it's a, it's at least an interesting political debate because it's the, like you said, not the overregulation, but it's the opposite of let's, let's kind of pull out some of these laws that they've carved out for themselves so that it has to be done this way. And that's kind of why, you know, as we were leading up to this, I wanted to get you on here is because I thought it was a, an interesting way that people can at least think about it. And I don't know if I even have the answer when it comes to this stuff, but I think it's something we always got to think about is before we overregulate ourselves right out, right into another problem after we are trying to regulate ourselves out of a different problem. So it's just an interesting take here with some of that. When we start talking about, you know, like pharmacist attacks are just drowning in their work. And I know you're coming from an opposite side or you want to pull back on regulations. But we've seen where states have mandated that I think it was California has a no pharmacist left alone law now, or at least it's pending, where like no pharmacist can be left in the pharmacy by themselves. There must be at least one technician or another pharmacist there all their times. We've seen technician uh, to pharmacist ratios be mandated. We've seen pharmacist script script volumes uh, limited. I think some states are limiting them to 150 prescriptions a day, which I feel like is maybe a little low, but it's somewhere in that ballpark or around that sweet spot. I could be wrong. But what are your thoughts with some of those laws versus what we're seeing now and how things like that could be put into place or shouldn't be put into place? I always look for what kind of unintended consequences these type of things are going to be. So if you put a technician to pharmacist ratio in there, what does that actually mean when it's put in place for real? Right. So if I have a store that's really busy between the hours of four and six, and I really need more technicians in that time, but I can't have those technicians in that time because I ha- only have so many hours that I can do, and I have to make sure that I am meeting all these these right things. So now between four and six, instead of having six techs like I need, I can only have three because I'm not getting another pharmacist during that time. And that's how it plays out in the real world. It's not, right. oh, well, we'll get another pharmacist in here. No, it's we'll just have some techs at other times to help clean up the mess that ends up happening because during this other time where I should have more techs, I couldn't have those. Um, so it's, it's a lot of that. When I look at regulations is this is what we intended to happen, but in reality, what is, what is going to occur? Um, it's the same thing with metrics when these large companies, they set up these metrics and you'll have things that they're intending it for us to do, but it ends up not being that way because the easier way is to click this button or yep. to say this happened when it didn't actually happen. I know you talked to your previous guest about this where he had said the, the exact same thing. And it's, it's always, if we're going to push these metrics and push these regulations really hard like this, you're going to see workarounds. And those workarounds a lot of times will end up having more adverse effects than they will if you didn't have any work around at all 
it's almost like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, basically. It's kind of the way you're putting this. Exactly. Yeah, everybody wants to do the right thing. At least we hope everybody wants to do the right thing. Um, and we have to pass this regulation because people weren't following the previous regulation good enough. And it was there because the previous regulation wasn't strong enough and people did it differently there. And then we just end up with regulation and regulation on top of regulation that then no one knows what they really truly are needing to do. And it's become such a burden that you've got independent pharmacists that can't keep up, which actually works out for the PBM, which goes back to the regulatory capture issue. Yeah, and we've seen some laws in certain states, and I'm, I'm blanking right off the top of my head, where they actually carve out chains of a certain size or you know employers of a certain size, and they carve out some of the smaller guys so that they can compete on a more level playing field, if you will. Because if, if I own my own pharmacy, that's a little bit different animal than if CVS owns theirs and just how we handle that. If I want to work 150 hours a week at my own pharmacy, it's very different than if I'm being paid by an employer and expected to work 40 and then working 100 hours. That's a very different dynamic there with the benefits and the rewards and the compensation, but it goes along the same lines to kind of what you're talking about with some of these things. If you start saying that, Hey, you can only have three techs to one pharmacist and you really need that fourth tech. Well, they're not going to give you an extra pharmacist. They're just going to make you deal with having that, those three techs. So now you're short one person, no matter which way you go on it. Yep. Which is not what it was intended. Exactly. They intended you to have another pharmacist in there, but that's not the way it's working. And that's not the way it's ever going to work under our current framework. Yes. Yeah. Current framework, I think is key here. There's many things that could change that could expand that. Um, I, you know, we could talk about provider status countless times on this podcast, and that's one that could kind of help blend some of these more staffing models when it comes to pharmacies and some of these workloads that they're facing to some extent, at least. Do you think that um, maybe putting pharmacists all the way up the chain of command is a, an important thing to do because then holding them accountable for their professional licenses if standards aren't met? Um. It definitely would help, I think, if you have pharmacists that have been in the trenches before and they can see once they get up a little bit higher and working up that chain of command, they can see what's happened down in the, in the trenches. But I've also seen a lot of pharmacists that have moved up their way, the corporate ladder, and they tend to forget what has happened in the past. And maybe it's just that times have changed and what they remember is not the pharmacy world that exists currently. That's definitely part of it. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing is I know there's, there's a lot of pharmacists that are just not good at managing. Um, and that's not their skill set. So you'd have to find those right people. And as far as keeping them accountable through their licensing, I am all for accountability. Um, we just got to make sure that it's done correctly and it gets back to those unintended consequences. Are we going to hold somebody accountable for a stupid mistake that somebody did, even when their pharmacy is running perfectly? Right. People make dumb mistakes all the time. So if I'm an upper, let's say a region manager, do I lose my license because Joe, who is a new pharmacist that has been doing really well and the pharmacy runs great, we've got everything running on all cylinders, he makes a dumb mistake and somebody dies. Do I lose my license now? That those are some concerns that I would have with some of that. And there's a lot of good intentions again. And I, I would be concerned a little bit about that. 
Okay. I just take it from the way of what I've seen and what a lot of my colleagues have seen of where the person who's ahead of the pharmacy manager isn't a pharmacist. And then, you know, they're trying to tell us how to do something, how to run a business, or in the case of the opioids where they're just yelling at you, Hey, fill those prescriptions. It doesn't matter. You can't do that. You can't use a professional judgment. And they haven't actually been there on the front lines. And we know how that played out with the opioid epidemic at the, uh, we've all seen the pharmacist on Netflix. So that's the example I think of now, granted that was a pharmacist who was actually running ahead of uh, Dan Schneider at the time. But I think we all see what the the greed side, if you will, does when that's kind of forced on someone in a situation like that. I do think pharmacists need to have the ability to have that autonomy when they don't want to fill something or they need to, to step away like that. And that's one thing that I personally have never run into at CVS is an issue where I didn't feel comfortable filling something that I was told differently. Now, maybe I'm just more uh, liberal with what I'm okay dispensing than somebody else, but that's just never been something that has been come up in my career. So I, I can't really speak to that. Okay. Another idea we've heard. So the previous idea I think came from Missouri where I believe up to a certain level, you have to have a pharmacist in charge of pharmacies. And now the Dakotas, I think it's South Dakota. I always confuse them just because I've never been to either one has a law that all pharmacies must be at least 50% owned by the pharmacy manager. I can't remember if it's North or South Dakota, but, but, uh, yeah. Uh, one of them has a law that the pharmacy must be at least 50% owned by the pharmacy manager. Do you think that's a route that could maybe kind of help fix some of these issues since they're obviously they're the direct ownership of it? Well, direct ownership definitely is going to be helpful when you own it and the profits end up in your pocket. You care a lot more whether or not that patient leaves happy or not. When that patient walks out the door because they're mad because you're behind, that's just one more patient that has left when you're at CVS. So you you care a lot less when it's not coming out of your pocket. So I do think that would help. I'm, again, not big on forcing one way or the other. But in this case, if it were to pass, do I think you'd see some good come out of it? Probably. I'm, I wonder how any big chain could ever function in a system like that, which might be good for that state. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I think it's just been an interesting thing because there's 49 states that operate one way and one state that operates the other. And if I remember correctly, their patient satisfaction level is is higher than most of the other states, like a significant amount. So I thought that's a very interesting topic. I would, I would definitely expect that to be the case. I mean, when you have direct ownership and what's going on, you're going to care a lot more about what your patients actually think. Yeah. And I feel like that, you know, even though we, we have harped on pharmacy school, not teaching management skills enough, I think if something like that did come into effect, you could see them reach out to their business school partners and all of a sudden change their curriculum. I'd say within the school year, Uh, that's how quick you could see something like that change. If a law like that came up, just my own two cents. Mm -hmm. And I know some of the deans who've been out here before would probably make that happen. Just knowing how awesome they are. So Moving on here before we end the podcast, you did say you served as an emerging leader. You won the Paragon Award for CVS, which is a super high recognition award. What were some of your thoughts from those two events to all of a sudden you left? Like, what is What goes through your head of, hey, I'm one of the best, to all of a sudden of, nope, can't stay here a day longer? Well, the Paragon situation was... It was one of those things where you, you end up going to these nice events and 
they treat you really well down there and you, you get all riled up, yay, CVS. Um, you come back and you're, you're ready to keep moving on. And I, I totally get why they do it based on that, that experience. Um, and then as emerging leader, I started to into that program and basically I started to realize that it wasn't going to be for me. And I made that vocal and then I was moved to a different pharmacy away from the store that I had been at. And I ended up having to tell CVS, like, this isn't going to work for me. Are we going to do this? Like, I don't want to have to look for a new job, but I will. And I was essentially told that this is the way it was going to be. So I was like, okay, well, I guess that Paragon award doesn't mean a whole lot if this is the way I'm going to get treated. So, I mean, I had to look for a new job and luckily I was able to find one pretty quickly, but the emerging leader thing, I think the reason why I got away from it is actually the day that I decided we'd had a regional meeting and I was involved in that as one of these up and coming leaders and the regional director at the very end of the meeting decided she was going to talk to everybody about flu shots and how she wanted these district leaders to go out and make sure that these pharmacists were calling patients that had gotten flu shots in the past and pushing flu shots and pushing flu shots. And we had just got done talking about stores that were way behind that the patient care side of things was stumbling and she mentioned that she was just in a store the past week and she had mentioned some of these ideas about moving flu shots and the pharmacist said, well, I can do that or I can do this other thing. And she talked about how she had to tell him you need to be able to do both. And it was just like, there's just a complete disconnect here. Like, If this is going to be my job where I have to knowingly go in and tell people they have to do both of these things that I know one is maybe possible, but there's no way they can do both at this current time. If that's going to be my job, I don't want to really be involved in that. Yeah. So I stepped back and at that point I felt like they didn't care if I left after that. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's disheartening to see someone who's so motivated and someone they recognize. And then it's not even what have you done for me lately? It's what are you, what are, have you done for me? this moment basically when it comes to stuff like that. And, and to your point, I've, I've faced Mm -hmm. some similar situations at different stores I've worked at through, through my time as a pharmacist. And they almost expect you to be like Doc Ock from Spider-Man where you can just all of a sudden unleash four more arms out of your back and then start doing everything at once or, or make time, which we all know is physically impossible. I'm not, I'm not that good at my Einstein theory of relativity, but I don't at least understand (laughs) how to make time right now. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely a frustration. I think a lot of pharmacists can relate to, and having to tell someone mm-hmm. that when you know it's not possible, it can be is equally disheartening on the other side. So just uh, yeah. so people know what it's like on the other side of that conversation. I think it isn't any easier. Um, now, kind of the way I always end the podcast here is two questions I ask everybody. If you could change one thing about ph- pharmacy, not law related, what would it be? I'd say better management within stores. Again, I think there's a lot of good pharmacists out there that manage their teams really well and then there's a lot that i have seen that either don't have the capacity to manage their teams well or don't have the time to manage their teams well and i think that would go a long way to making pharmacies run well if we had better management within 
these pharmacies that are out there. And that's not just your pharmacy managers because they're not going to be there all the time, but that's even your staff pharmacists, your floating pharmacists. Just the ability to manage people even a little bit would go a long way, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I would love to see that and then maybe get back to more of our grassroots of managing and truly owning a business as pharmacists as well. I think that would go a long way with our profession. Now, I know this yeah. isn't going to be a very popular one with you, but if you could change one <laughs> law about pharmacy, what would it be and why? Uh, so this is going to be not very popular with a lot of people. My answer to this, I think everything should be OTC. And I know that's going to make a lot of pharmacists be like, well, what's my job going to be now? And I, I just think of that person that's 45 years old. They have one blood pressure medication. That's the only thing they've taken for the last 10 years. What value am I providing that person? by requiring that prescription to go through me. Why is it that they can't go to the shelf and grab a box of 30 and walk home after they paid for it? Because they already know exactly what's going to happen with that. And then if they need my services, I'm available. And it opens up pharmacists from a lot more other things too. We have a lot of drug knowledge. We have disease state knowledge that we're being taught in schools now, we can work alongside doctor's offices. Doctors can diagnose things. And then we can talk to patients about how to manage those drugs. And they can go grab them off of a shelf in prepackaged forms, just like they would their Tylenol. And it gives patients the autonomy to go wherever they need to. It gives you price transparency, which is personally something I think is as big a factor as anything is why we're seeing costs skyrocket is no one knows what they're paying for. And that's not just in pharmacies, that's in hospitals, surgeries across the board. When you don't know the prices, it's hard to know what you're really shopping for. Um, We've seen it with COVID really kills competition. Yeah, we've seen it with COVID. Yeah. So that's what I would change. Um, I'm not thinking that's ever going to happen anytime soon. So I just, I live in my fantasy world sometimes where I wish these things would happen. Just get as close as we can, get a, a freer world as we move along. I, I might only be okay with that if you could also order labs OTC so you could at least you know make educated decisions on yourself. But we've all seen those people yep, who – Do it all. We've also seen those people who can't even learn or figure out to unwrap a suppository before they insert it. So sometimes, you know, faith in humanity yeah. gets a little destroyed in pharmacy sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah. Arthur, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. I, I really appreciate that you brought a little bit different uh, perspective to pharmacy, more of the anti-regulation side, but at the same time, understanding that there's problems that need to be fixed. So thank you for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. Yes, thank you. All right, listeners. Uh, hey, let me know what you think of the show. It's a little bit different take on some of the politics. I'd like to switch it up a little bit for you guys, but I think it's a great follow-up to uh, Dr. Wesley Hickman, who's running for the North Carolina Board of Pharmacy again. I'm just going to plug him one more time because I think he'd be an awesome leader down there in the South. Thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.